Good morning. It's Orphan Sunday, and I'm so glad that we had the Whalens come up here and Olivia to put a face to what we're talking about. It's not just a concept or idea or a push for something good, but there's real people connected behind this. And Olivia is a showstopper. She did both services. She's amazing. But I also want to put before us a couple sayings that I've collected from adopted children. And I think these are going to tell us a little bit about the life of being adopted. And the first one's a little humorous. The second one's a little humorous. So, so bear with me here. So the first child says this. Your parents can't use the I brought you into this world and I can take you out nonsense. You picked me up from the airport fully clothed with food. Feel free to return me just so. The second child says, when people are so impressed that my parents adopted a two-month-old Kenyan baby that doesn't speak English, it's like, what two-month-old baby do you know that speaks any language? <laughs> Another child says, when people say, are you talking about your real mom or your adopted mom? Avi, I'm talking about the woman who potty trained me, drove me to soccer practice, and helped me with homework and cried at my graduation. What a reminder, a powerful reminder that Family is rooted in acts of loving kindness. That's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. The danger, though, with Adoption Sunday is that we can often take a day or a month, just like African Black History Month, we can relegate the importance of those people and that issue to one point on our calendar. But in reality, Adoption Sunday is every Sunday. Don't we all come together as adopted children, adopted by God in the gospel, through Christ's death and resurrection, we're sons and daughters. Romans 8.15 says, So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, Daddy. So all of us come here today calling God Daddy because he's adopted us. He saw us lying there and he said, I want you. You're coming into my house. As a matter of fact, all of Scripture, all of Scripture in a sense is an adoption story. The fall with the brokenness of sin, relationships with humans and God, even ecology has all been fractured. But since then you see God in his covenant faithfulness pursuing people, pursuing a people for himself, bringing outsiders in and calling enemies sons and daughters. Now you're in my house. We're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 9 today, and this story takes place about a thousand years uh, before the arrival of Jesus. So first and second Samuel highlights God's kingship. It's in these stories that, in these books that you read the stories of David and Goliath and, and Saul and God placing the first kings on Israel's throne. And the purpose of this is God wants to demonstrate his kingship what he's like. And we get to see a taste of that here in this story in 2 Samuel 9. So please, if you'd like to open with me, you can read along with me. It's 2 Samuel chapter 9, it's verses 1 through 13. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, 
Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I give to your master's grandson. And you and your son and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Therefore Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord, the king, commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes to this, to this adoption story. Open our hearts. Show us in this story our story and the calling to show the kindness of God to those that surround us. We ask that you'd guide my words as I preach today, that I speak clearly and proclaim the excellencies of Christ and power in your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this topic is a little challenging for me. And when I look at the story of Mephibosheth, I can't help but look at my own life. Because I'm not really much different from that man. And that's the honest truth. See, when I look back at my life, I see a mess. I was conceived out of wedlock, and shortly after... Being born, my mother met a Nigerian man, and he said, come with me, let's move to Africa. And as I look back on that as a teenager, I thought, how random is my life? How messed up? How weird? Like, you guys are the Smiths, and I don't even know where I come from. Like, what, what's going on here? But my life was radically changed. As I began to look back over the last few years, I'm beginning to see a genealogy of grace. See, the Lord allowed me to be conceived. He chose me. He drew me into to life. And then as my mother went to Africa, she's on the town one day, Lagos, Nigeria, coastal city, and she sees a boat posted up on the dock there, and it says, floating library. Like, Interesting. That's, I've never been to a floating library before. Let me check this out. So she goes aboard the boat, and inside of that boat, 
are young people who have committed themselves to a year of missionary work. These are young people who are in between probably high school and college, and they decided to dedicate a year to sacrifice time and money in order to show the kindness of God to anyone that could, they could meet. And my mom's life was changed that day, and my life was changed that day because she became a follower of Christ. She came into the family of God. And she was a good mom, a praying mom. But love came into my life on that missionary ship through the sacrifice of young people. One author speaks of this type of love in this way. Love is extending yourself for the good of others. And extending ourselves is often painful. So the love and the acts of kindness that the biblical authors are speaking of here and the kindness of God is a sacrificial love. It's a love that sees, sees the cost and brings and draws in. To put it another way, there must be an element of kindness to sustaining loving relationships it must be an element of kindness to sustain all loving relationships, whether it's a girlfriend, a spouse, or an adopted child. So although adoption is good, it's costly. That's why Jay gave us this fact here that there's almost 14,000 children who need to be adopted in the state. It's costly. And God's called us to respond. And the thing I want us to get from this today is I want us to remember. Remember our adoption. Remember how the Lord saw you in the orphanage and he picked you out and he saw all that you, problems that you'd bring to him, but he said, I want you, come on in with me. I want us to reawaken to our own adoption. And from that to overflow and give, to serve the young people, to bring the orphans in, There's just three points I have in this sermon today, and it's going to reflect on God's kindness, this adoptive kindness that he demonstrates in this story. It's the cost of kindness, the rewards of kindness, and the means of kindness. If we look at the first verse in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, David asks a question, and he says, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And that sounds like a pretty nice thing to do. You know, let me show someone kindness for Jonathan's sake. And let me just give you this background here. David's kingdom has just been established. All of his power is consolidated. It's basically the first time in his reign in which everything's in perfect order. And you know how it is when things are in perfect order. When you make the bed perfect, you don't want anybody jumping on it, which is bound to happen at my house. But David has established his kingdom. The Lord has been kind to him. All of his enemies are vanquished. Everything's neat and tidy and orderly. And he introduced this question that could mess everything up. He said, is there anyone of Saul's house whom I can show kindness to? And it sounds really nice, but it's not nice. Because anyone in his court would say, David, all I see here is liability. Saul was your sworn enemy. To bring anyone from his house into our house is definitely going to mean problems, trouble, drama. You could lose your place as king. So this wasn't safe, and we know this. I mean, if you look at the biblical history, you see kings of the ancient Near East, and even up to more modern times, they did whatever they could to protect their power. I mean, King Herod, when he heard that there was another king being born, he sent the issue 
to kill all children two years old and under. If you're a fan of the Tudors or history, you know Henry VIII, what he did. He did everything in his power to protect his position and his status. He'd marry family members. He would murder. He'd kill. He was reported to even have killed elderly women if they had any way of threatening his reign. So this was a very unnatural thing David was doing. He was making himself vulnerable. So we have to look at the word kindness here. As we look at the biblical text, the word kindness isn't so much like our English word kindness, which can be probably replaced with niceness. It was the word hesed, which has a very different meaning, a much richer and strong meaning. Here in the Bible, hesed can mean faithfulness, mercy, goodness, loyalty, steadfast love, meeting an extreme need outside the norm, run of perceived duty and arising from personal affection and pure goodness. So this kindness, this hesed that the Bible talks about, is a costly kindness. And this is what David was willing to demonstrate, costly kindness as a picture of the ideal king, the king to come. So David seeks out Saul's descendants, and he brings them into his house. He's allowing a loose end. He's allowing one of his rivals to come and live with him. But ultimately, David chooses kindness instead of comfort. There's a a movie that really had a a big impact on me over the last year. It's called Instant Family, and it's just about this topic, adoption and fostering. And there's this scene, which is just so timely. It's a Thanksgiving scene. And the family in this scene is holding hands, and they're beginning their prayer. And Grandma starts out the prayer. I'm thankful for my beautiful grandchildren, including the very lucky kids who are soon to be adopted by two wonderful parents. The brother-in-law chimes in. I'm really thankful for that, too. I mean, it's really inspiring stuff, you guys. Well done. At this time, Pete and Ellie, the prospective parents, have to stop the flow of the prayer. Hey, guys, please... We've thought about it some more, and we realize we just haven't thought it through properly. And then this funny dynamic switch happens, and everyone begins to speak what was really on their mind. <laughs> Facades come down. Brother-in-law says, this is great news. I mean, we were all being supportive to your faces. But his wife says, oh, yeah, we all thought you were out of your minds. Mom said, I never said anything, but I'm thankful for this decision. And as the family began to speak more and more, they, the ugliness of their hearts began to come out. And really what was behind all this is there's fear. What about your, I don't want your children hanging out with mine. Like your children may be damaged goods or what have they been through? What abuse, what are you going to bring into our family? You're going to mess with our dynamic here. And an interesting thing, if you're watching Ellie's face during this scene, she began to grow and resolve like, oh my goodness. This is really what I was backing away from. I was backing away from the cost of adoption. And she eventually pipes up and says, thousands of children are spending Thanksgiving without family. And right now, I kind of envy them. 
but I know how you guys love me, and I know I have a place to go to eat turkey and be thankful, but a lot of kids don't have that, and it's not their fault, and they're not damaged goods, so forget what I said before. It's back on. (laughs) And she made the decision in that moment to enter the costly kindness of adoption. And isn't this true? Think of our own adoption. Think of the cost that it took for God to bring us in as his children. He sent his own son to suffer and die. He said, I want you. This is hesed. This isn't niceness. There are a lot of huge costs in adopting children, one pastor says, and some are emotional. There are costs of time, stress for the rest of your life. You never stop being a parent till you die. And the stresses of caring about adult children can be as great or greater than the stresses of caring for young children. There's something very deep and right about the embrace of this cost for the life of a child. So we're not all prepared for the cost of adopting, but as we've heard Jay say time and time again over the last year, he's like, if you're not called to adopt, can you join in? Can you help someone in our church body? Can you support them? God's calling us to this. And once again, remember, This is the sweetness of the gospel. Don't we all just long for this? Don't we just all at our core long for this? For someone to look at us, to see all of our cracks, all of our tears, all of our foibles, all of our problems, and say, I want you, as crazy as this is, I want you. Get in my house. Come on. Come and eat dinner with me. That's what I'm longing for. Second, Point, the rewards. It'd be, we'd be remiss just to say adoption only is a matter of paying this high cost, but there's rewards that come with it. Let's look back at the scripture. Consider the benefits that Mephibosheth received. So imagine Mephibosheth. He's disabled, and it's difficult to be disabled no matter what time you live in, but he lives in the ancient Mideast. And there is not supports, there's not laws, there's nothing set in place to keep him from utter despair. So he lives at the whim of others. He's reliant, he's utterly dependent. And he lives in a land called Lodabar, which means land of no pastures. And can you imagine what it felt like to him when a royal official came and said, the king is summoning you to his court. That can't be good news when the officials come into your neck of the woods and they're never there. So imagine, imagine Mephibosheth entering that royal courtroom. The doors open and he sees the king in all his grandeur. His robe is spread out. He's a picture of power, strength, and beauty. And Mephibosheth limps in. He does what comes most natural to him. He falls on his face. And he says, I'm your servant. Where he expected execution, something different's about to happen. He receives grace. The king looks at him and says, Mephibosheth, I want to give to you 
I want to reward you based on the love I had for your father. He was a very dear friend to me. And you're going to get everything that it was his. And he said to Saul's servants, All that belonged to Saul and all of his house I've given to your master's grandson. Mephibosheth is basically hearing you won the $10 million jackpot right now. The Powerball. And you and your sons and servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, he's not just going to be rich. He's going to sit at my table. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons, the passage says. And what this reminds me of is that kindness transforms. This biblical hesed kindness it transforms. So Mephibosheth came in as a servant, and he was made a son. He came in poor and a beggar, and he was given riches. He came in homeless, and now he lives in a palace. Isn't this true? The scriptures tell us that kindness leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that transforms us and leads us to repentance. Tim Keller speaks of this transformative process. When he says, a slave is manic. This process from going from a slave to a son. A slave is manic. The son is even keeled. A slave is judgmental and critical in spirit. But a son is affirming. I'll give you another one. Slave is defensive and controlling. For the same reason, a slave, ment a slave mentality says, I have to look good. Unless I look good, I'm not lovable. Therefore, you can't take criticism without being destroyed. Therefore, you're defensive when someone brings up a wrong against you. You have to look good. But it's the kindness of God that brings us in, and it transforms us. We can leave the slave mentality behind. You see, children and slaves both obey the master of the house, don't they? But because of the dynamic between a father and a son. The obedience is radically different for the child than for the slave. The slave obeys because he knows if you don't measure up, you're out. You're dispensable. A child obeys because he knows he's loved. We saw Olivia here this morning. She knows she's in. She knows she didn't have to be perfect. Mom and dad are with me. They love me. I get to act. I get to jump off the stage while they talk. <laughs> so the slave's motivation is fear because they know they can be thrown out, but a son's is security. This is my dad. So a son is emotionally even keeled. This is what God brings us into with this kindness, the hesed kindness, and he pursued us with his own son. We get to rest and breathe. I belong my performance doesn't determine my worth and value. Christ's performance, his death on the cross, it ensures security, sanity, power, love, and a sound mind. So we go from enemies to family. There's a, there's a beautiful picture of this in a, in, well, it's a, it's a book, but I call it a movie because I watched the movie, not the book. It's Les Mis. And many of you know where I'm going with this, but there is a parolee, Jean Valjean, and he's issued this yellow passport. And what it is is a constant reminder 
You're a criminal. You're a low good, dirty rotten, no good scoundrel. And wherever you go, make sure people see this because they need to know who you are. And he quickly becomes homeless and he's living on the streets. And a bishop sees him lying on the streets and says, Jean Valjean, come into my house. Come stay with me. Come eat dinner with me tonight. And Jean Valjean comes in. He's just a shell of a man. He's more like an animal hovering over his table, eating his food, looking for how to protect himself. He's in a defensive posture. He goes to sleep that night, but quickly wakes up because he knows that this comfort will quickly be gone. This act of kindness will quickly dissipate. And he goes into the kitchen and steals all the silver he can get his hands on and takes off. The next day, Jean Valjean's captured and he's brought back to the bishop. And the bishop, as soon as he sees him, his face is full of disappointment. Jean Valjean, I'm so disappointed in you. You forgot the most expensive gifts I had for you. He tells the officer, let him go. Those were all gifts. He goes and grabs the silver candlesticks and said, take this, Jean Valjean. And after the officers leaves, he says, today with this act of kindness, I have bought your soul. Kindness transforms. It's a hesed kindness, the kindness of God. So let's remember our status and our inheritance. I mean, think of, think of the people who do win the, the $300 million jackpot. What happens to their life? How are they transformed? You get cut off in traffic. You're okay with it. You know, you have a bad day, you have a sore throat. I'm all right because in about a few days, in about a few months, whatever it takes to get that, I haven't got it, things are going to be all right. And your outlook changes because you know that you're secure. You have a hope. You have a future. You're going to be provided for, and that's what we have in the gospel. So let's refresh. Let's refresh ourselves with our own adoption, the memory of our own adoption. We've been brought in. We're free not to be critical. We're free to love others without being defensive. We're free to take some risks, sacrifice our time and energy. Finally, we're going to look at the source of kindness. And I don't know about you, but I always, as a young Christian, I always thought, I want to be like David. He's the man. He's so godly. He's strong. He's a warrior. He plays instruments. Everything about him is just so cool. He was the ideal king, wasn't he? God set him on the throne. He displaced Saul and set him on the throne. This is my kind of king, the kind of king that shows kindness to Mephibosheth. That reflects me a little more correctly. But we have to look closer because David was just as duplicitous as the next guy. Matter of fact, if you look earlier in Samuel, he's insulting the blind and the lame. 2 Samuel 9. The remainder of 2 Samuel chapters 10 and on are all about David's immense failures as a king, as a leader. Sexual brokenness. Brokenness as a leader of his household. Brokenness as a ruler, as a minister to God's people. All we see are his failures, and rightly so, because God did not want us to make David that ideal man. He was only Christ. He's pointing to Christ 
Jesus, the ideal king, who came down from heaven, lived a sinless life, poured his hesed out on a people who did not know him in order to make them sons and daughters. So this story of David, it's a real nice story. But what I like about it most is that it points to the king of kindness who came and lived and died, paid the cost to bring us in as sons and daughters. And he did all this to say, Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you. Daddy loves you. Let's pray.